Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Dale and I are joined today by Dr. Michael Ward, a fellow at Blackfriars Hall, University of Oxford, and also professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University. Uh, Dr. Ward is best known for his book, Planet Narnia, which we have, have right here, we're going to discuss today. Uh, a book which uh, blew the minds of Lewis scholar and novice alike, uh, mere nerd and mere sage alike. Uh, <laughs> but it, but instead of over overly revealing at the get go, we're just gonna we're just gonna jump right into the conversation and and uh, 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 summarize the thesis of this book for those who have not engaged it before, and then talk about a, a few pieces of it. Uh, but then, first of all, of course, uh, Dr. Ward, thanks for being with us today. It's such a such a pleasure to have you. And maybe perhaps the, the way we could just uh, get into our conversation is ask you, as I'm sure you've been asked many times, to, to just summarize the very basic thesis, the very basic, the basic discovery, uh, if it could be put in terms of uh, the singular, the basic discovery that we've made here with, uh, that you've made in uh, Planet Narnia. And then we'll maybe get into the implications of that. Yes, there are seven Narnia Chronicles because I believe there were seven medieval planets. That's it in its basic essential form. Mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis was a medieval scholar. That was the subject that, that he specialized in and taught for most of his career at Oxford and then at Cambridge. And as a medieval scholar, he, he, he paid particular attention to the medieval cosmos. And in the medieval view of the heavens, there were three, there were seven planets. Uh, the sun and the moon, interestingly, which we now don't regard as planets at all. And in addition to the sun and the moon, you had Mars, Mercury, Venus, Jupiter, and Saturn. Those were the seven heavens, the seven planets, and C.S. Lewis described them as spiritual symbols of permanent value, which were especially worthwhile in his own generation. Because, of course, these seven planets are not just objects in the sky. They, they become connected with a whole range of qualities and attributes and characteristics. And it was thought in, in the Middle Ages that the influences of the planets would, would give a certain kind of color to your personality, your temperament, and, you know, events in, in your life. Even the metals in Earth's crust were connected to the planets. And Lewis, as a medieval scholar, wrote about these seven heavens all over his academic writings, but also in his poetry and in his other fiction, the Ransom Trilogy, is heavily indebted to these uh, seven celestial bodies. And when he came to write Narnia, he used these seven spiritual symbols again, but this time secretly, implicitly. He just wove the characteristics into each of the Narnia Chronicles. Yes. And before Joe asks um, the follow-up to that, uh, because I think it's just worth a point of clarification or explanation, um, when you say spiritual significance, he thought that the seven planets had a spiritual, a lasting spiritual significance. For Lewis, spiritual was used in different senses. So in what way would he attribute a spiritual significance to the med medieval cosmology? Yes, he, he uses the word spiritual in, in very careful ways. And, and, and I, I found, I think, at least five different meanings that he attaches to the word spiritual. But when he refers to the planets as spiritual symbols, uh, I think he basically means, uh, we, can, we can summarize it down to two things. 
uh, and I'm just turning up the relevant page in my book so that I can uh, sound a little bit more um, fluent. <laughs> right. <laughs> so one of the senses of spiritual is simply, uh, you know, the opposite of bodily or material, mm. you know, the immaterial. So things like emotions, passions, memory, imagination, uh, that's sometimes what Lewis means by soul when he talks about mm. the spiritual. Mm. Um, and the other principal meaning that he attaches to it is, of course, uh, you know, the Christian life, the spiritual life of, of those who have, uh, you know, become surrendered to Christ by the, the grace of the Holy Spirit. Yes. And, and that's another way in which I think we should understand spiritual when when Lewis refers to the seven yeah that they can be used to to depict and to portray the the experience of the christian yes one, one of the the things that uh of course is so fascinating about this and you discuss this in your book that there's a there, there's a there's a little bit of a playfulness here right and sort of sort of a you know uh hiding <laughs> hiding a little bit of and you, you talk about how this is sort of consonant with leas c.s lewis ethos and character in its own way uh and with god's character <laughs> actually that there's there's in the, the theme of hiding uh is all over lewis of course yeah. uh, but lewis has hidden something in the text um Nevertheless, like one thesis could be that it's merely playful, you know, that it's that it's just done for fun, and you you entertain that briefly in the book, but but you argue that that he that Lewis seems to have wanted that this uh, Lewis seems to have been using this as a communicative and a rhetorical strategy as well. He's doing more than just hiding a theme because he's a nerd, you know, and likes likes the seven planets and sprinkling them in places. Uh, but in what way, I guess uh, one question I think that's interesting, if Lewis has sort of sort of taken the, the medieval themes of the planets and submerged them or incarnated them in these these uh, these works of imagination, these, these works on, on Narnia, in what way has this... Uh, could we say this? In what way has Lewis' strategy been working on us even before we make the discovery? So it's like, did Lewis imagine that taking this strategy actually had an impact on the imagination even prior to the discovery that this is precisely how he was doing it? Uh, so maybe that's one way of yeah asking it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and we, we need to be clear what we mean by hiddenness, Lewis hiding this, you know, it's not, um, it's not secreted away in, in like a, like a, um, you know, a, a, a cipher or a code that has to be cracked. And then once you've, you know, decrypted it, then everything is different. Oh, and I, yeah. I now, I now see precisely what, what I didn't see before. No, it's hidden in plain sight. That's the interesting thing, that it's been in front of us all this time and we have been enjoying it, this symbolism, but we've been understanding it in a different, with a different level of consciousness. That's the key distinction. C.S. Lewis div divided our conscious life into two different modes. One, one is what, is what he calls enjoyment, and the other is what he calls yeah. contemplation. And when you contemplate something, you look at it from the outside. You, you inspect it in a sort of objective way. You stand over against it. 
you uh, you see the whole of it from the outside. But when you enjoy something, you stand in inside it. You stand within it, so that you are not embracing it, but it is embracing you. Mm. And the place where he writes about this most explicitly is his short article, Meditation in a Toolshed, where he talks about either looking at a beam of light, right. you can see a strip of dusty light glancing down through the darkness of a toolshed, or you can step inside the beam of light and look along it, and then your whole vision changes. You see not the beam of light, but that which the beam of light illuminates, namely the crack at the top of the door and the leaves on the tree waving in the wind outside, and and millions of miles away, you'll see the sun itself. But interestingly, you will not see the tool shed and you, neither will you see the beam of light because the beam of light vanishes when you are within it. It's like, you know, this is a good example of, of a sort of enjoyed enjoyment consciousness. Um, do the fish, do fish in the sea know that the sea is wet? Right. Probably not <laughs> because it's the element that they live in. Only if you're an amphibious creature, only if you can live on the land and in the sea, would you be able to describe the sea as wet, mm. because you would know, by contrast, what was meant by the word dry. Um, but with regard to God, and this is where we come back to the spiritual sense of, of the symbolism in Narnia, with regard to God, C.S. Lewis argues in various places, we can never make of God a pure object of contemplation. We can never stand outside God and reduce God, as it were, to a mere object. Yes. As it were, lay out on a laboratory table and dissect. Because, why can't we do that? Because in God we live and move and have our being, as St. Paul says in, in Acts. Uh, in Christ all things hold together, as St. Paul says in Colossians. Um, God has brought everything into being and is sustaining everything into being. And in a certain sense, we are inside God. Yes. We, there's no way in which we can step into a pure situation of godlessness, because to do that would be to step into non-existence. Right. To step into the void. So with, with regard to God, we are always enjoying God, even as we contemplate God. Um we can, we can never get outside God. Mm. And so, with regard to Narnia, <laughs> this is where we bring it back to the, the spiritual symbolism of the planets. That's why C.S. Lewis kept it secret, because he was trying to get us to enjoy a, let us say, a Jupiter-infused world, or a Mars-filled world, or a mercurial world. Where, where, so to speak, we, we live and move and have our being within the spirit of Mercury or the spirit of Jupiter or the spirit of Mars. Um, yeah. we, don't, we don't raise that or we don't reduce that to the contemplative consciousness, but, but we, we draw every single breath, as it were, imaginatively speaking, within that spirit-filled right. um, reality. Yeah, yeah. It to say that, oh, go ahead, Dale. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think it's a that's worth a that that point that you're making here of uh, the distinction between enjoyment and sort of contemplation, um, especially in the modern age, and especially for certain theological types, like, you know, you got the Reformation, then you had scholasticism, um, with the fine distinctions that they were making. Um, and really, 
we've 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 gotten so good about the science of systematizing our doctrine that we think everything can be precisely placed where it is and once all of the things sort of interlock to make the perfect system you've arrived at a true understanding of of god mm-hmm. um where c.s lewis had more of an imagination like uh you said at the beginning He's trying to show us all of the colors and how all of these things sort of come together to paint a picture that can't be um, like put on a, a, a lab table and seen under a microscope and categorized under the proper doctrine doctrinal heading. Uh, and I think he also makes this point in Miracles when he talks about um, how when you're in- enjoying friendship, you're not sitting back going, okay, this is what I call joy. And this is what I call friendship. And here's how all that works. You just laugh and drink a, a, a you know, a, a pint of, of beer and, and hang out with your buddies. And you're actually in the thing you're, you're in joy. You're, you're not trying to analyze and uh, discursively reason and, and put into propositions what joy is. You're just experiencing the joy. And so it seems like uh, what, what you make the case for in the book is that he's just noticing this is the waters that we swim in. And it resonated with the medieval mind in a particular way. And uh, what was really helpful for me is to, it knocked off a lot of crust on my brain. I think I said in the the email, this book literally changed my life for a, a number of reasons. But one of the reasons is because it helped me to realize how disenchanted my thinking is and how just boring I, I think about the, you know, I don't, I don't have very colorful categories. <laughs> and when I, when I read your explanation of what Lewis is doing, I'm like, it doesn't even begin to like enter into a realm of thought that I would ever go there. And maybe that's me not being a full human in some sense. And so like recapturing the imagination and, and enchantment and thinking well, about magic and- Dale, yeah. this, this gets into actually kind of that follow-up, which is like uh, maybe one, I, I recall one of our, Dale and I's mutual friends read this book and he literally, uh, he literally came to me and he said something to the effect of Lewis, Lewis is quite literally playing the role of a wizard. This was sort of his, I think, and I think you hint at something like this just toward the conclusion of the book. Uh, and I wonder, is that overstating it? Is it overstating it uh, to say that there's almost a sense in which Lewis is y- using a spell of words and a spell of narrative almost to play the role in, in, in a modern, in the consciousness of a modern human that the planets would have played in the consciousness of, of, of a medieval human? And precisely in doing that, he's actually in a very peculiar and kind of uh, uh, rhetorical way, bridging the gap between the medieval and the modern person. In other words, you think this is irrelevant, but the very fact that you're enjoying these books (laughs) uh, actually shows to you that you are still the kind of person who lives in this this actual world. Uh, so it, it, I guess that, that, another way of saying that is, is, is it too much to say Lewis is a wizard who's being the planets? Uh, or is that, is that a... No, I don't, think that's, that's, I don't think that's overstating it. In a way, I would almost say it's understating it because hmm. it, hmm. I, I, I myself would not characterize Lewis's role in this whole strategy as, as, that, as one that is best understood by analogy with wizardry but one that's best understood by analogy with, with God, 
with the divine. Mm. Um, what I mean is that C.S. Lewis is the author of the Narnian world. He is the creator of everything Narnian. He knows precisely what he's up to as he invents the storylines, as he invents the characters, mm. as he weaves the whole spell, you know, to come back to wizardry. Um, but it's, it's more like a divine role than, than a merely wizarding role. Because um, after all, a wizard is only, you know, only one element in an existing world. Whereas, of course, C.S. Lewis is the creator of the whole Narnian world. Yes. So, so it, maybe it, divine relative to Narnia, but maybe would the wizard metaphor be appropriate relative to, to the reader, in a sense? Uh, oh, yes, that, yes, yes, yes. That, that's, a, that's a fair distinction, absolutely. That Lewis, vis-a-vis -vis the reader, is, we could say, casting a spell. Um, he's just, as it were, saying, you know, kind of abracadabra, <laughs> yes. in, a very, in a very Christian way, of course, um, yeah. and uh, ushering us into what it is like to live in a world in which everything hangs together. Yeah. Uh, just as he believed in the real world, everything hangs together in Christ. So in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, everything hangs together in Aslan, but yeah. Aslan understood by means of the symbolism of Jupiter, the king. So everything in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is kingly and regal and monarchical right. and jovial. And likewise, in, the, in Prince Caspian, everything hangs together in Aslan, the Christ figure, but Christ as understood by means of the symbolism of Mars. So everything there is chivalrous and gallant and knightly and ordered, yeah. right. uh, and so on and so forth. Seven yeah, points. yeah. yeah it's, you also mention uh, in the book that um, so each chapter you have a, your first chapter is on silence, which is what we're sort of talking about the hiddenness of the message, um, uh, and then the rest of the book, you talk about the planets in general, and then you go through each planet and how it corresponds to the, to the, uh, the novel or the uh, um, story that he wrote, the particular Narnia book. Uh, but you also loop in, um, well, you do talk about miracles, but you also loop in the Ransom Trilogy fairly frequently, in particular, that hideous strength. Um, and that hideous strength is uh, probably my favorite novel ever. Um, I haven't found one that does, I haven't found a different book that does what that book does to me when I read it. Yeah. Um, but talk to us a little bit about the connection here. So what's interesting about your thesis is that it's not relegated to the Narniad. It's, it's actually like permeating all of Lewis's works in some respect which just shows his dedication to this way of understanding the cosmos. But talk to us a little bit about how uh, it touches, the Narnia universe touches something that he was getting at in that hideous strength. Like where is the point of connection? Is it merely the planets or is he trying to do something grander? Uh, well, for those of, you, of your listeners who haven't read the That Hideous Strength or the Ransom Trilogy more generally, um, it's important to say that the whole trilogy is structured out of medieval planetary symbolism. Mm. So that in the first of the three books, the hero goes to Mars, which is a very medievally understood Mars. In the second book, the hero goes to Venus, very medievally understood Venus. 
So we have masculinity and femininity, Mars and Venus, in those first two books. And then in the third book, which is set on Earth, the, the very first word of that third book is matrimony. Mm. So having laid out masculinity and femininity in the first two books, according to the symbolism of Mars and Venus, now in the third book, Lewis is going to talk about how masculinity and femininity do or do not come together successfully in a happy human marriage. So mm. the, the characters who are, who, are, who are fronting that hideous strength are Mark and Jane, a young couple who, as it happens, aren't very happily married. And that's yeah. because they're, they're not being truly masculine and feminine, respectively. Now, as the story progresses, um, the planetary influences exert themselves um, more and more forcibly. And indeed, it's not just Mars and Venus who exert themselves, but Jupiter and Saturn and Mercury, too. Uh, five of the seven planets come down to Earth in, uh, in, in that sort of climactic chapter called The Descent of the Gods. Um, yes. The gods here meaning, uh, as it were, created gods, um, angelic spirits, mighty, mighty spiritual beings that the true God has, has created and assigned to the seven planets. And they come down and they exert their influences on Mark and Jane and so that their marriage is healed and they become a true man and a true woman respectively. Um, so so in, in the Ransom Trilogy, the planets are obvious, they're explicit. Um, what is not so explicit is the way that Lewis uses the planets to develop his theme of gender. But in Narnia, it's the planets that are implicit. The planets don't draw any attention to themselves. They are just used to, as, as we've been saying, body forth this enchanted view of, of, of the Narnian world where everything has significance, everything bespeaks that, that spirit of right. Jupiter, Mars, Venus, whatever it may be, out of which the, the, the relevant chronicle is constructed. Yeah. So one of the one of the things that I think is maybe a, a, a question that might be going through people's mind when they hear a thesis like this, because one of the things that's so interesting in Lewis, of course, is that he's, you know, at the end of the discarded, discarded image, of course, about all this medieval symbolism, uh, you know, he basically says something to the effect of like, I'm making, I'm not hiding the fact that I'm just delighted <laughs> by, the, by the symmetry of this universe. Uh, and there's a similar theme in Lewis, um, uh, and you can find a roughly parallel thing in Tolkien as well, where he's he's fascinated also, I think, by the uh, by the the kind of pre-Christian pagan mind as well. So in that, yes. uh, till we have faces, it's sort of like, what did the world seem like to these people? And he's trying to take seriously almost another version of the discarded image that isn't quite the exactly the same as the medieval one. Um, and uh, nevertheless, he, he wants to, there, there's a tendency in a lot of modern discourse to sort of say like, okay, there's some spiritual truth communicated in the external husk of these things. Uh, and we preserve the truth, but get rid of the husk. Uh, but Lewis is, is fascinated by the husk itself <laughs> in some way, both in the kind of pre-Christian version and in the medieval version. And so I guess all of that sort of comes together to form a question that I think uh, he was fascinated by. And that is, um, uh, 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 what, what do we say to those who say that the discarded image should be discarded? Uh, how, in other words, would Lewis respond to any charge of being driven by 
by just mere sentiment, which is a real concern because some people get fascinated by this stuff almost because they find, I hate to put it this way, but the real world too boring. And so it's almost because it can become this kind of um, project that is actually an escape from the real world uh, so, uh, uh, rather than something shoving you deeper into it. So how would, how would he adjudicate maybe that dispute? Uh, 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 yeah. The idea that this could be used for maybe pathological ends versus actually helping you press deeper into reality. Well, it's important to remember that his book is called The Discarded Image. Um, right, this image right. has been discarded and Lewis isn't trying to retain it. He isn't trying to resurrect it. Um, as he says at the end of that book, having you know spent many, many pages expatiating upon, upon the glories of this old understanding of, of the cosmos, he says that the reader will be begging to remind me that this image of the cosmos had one significant flaw. It was not true. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, and he says, I agree, it was not true. Um, but he then goes on to say, but what do we mean precisely these days by truth? Right. Um, the, the very progress of, of scientific cosmological models, you know, from the, the pre-Copernican, you know, the, the old geocentric model of the cosmos to the heliocentric, the sun-centered cosmos, to the, to the Newtonian cosmos, to the Einsteinian cosmos. All these uh, progressions indicate that what we understand to be true about the universe at any given point in history is always provisional, which isn't to say that Lewis has suddenly become a relativist or a subjectivist. Right. right. But he is saying, of course, we are subjects. We are inescapably those who do the knowing. And what we know might be objective, um, but it's always incomplete. And as science progresses, as as human knowledge progresses on, on every front, not just the scientific front, we get a more and more, hopefully, a more and more accurate um, understanding of this objective reality that we perceive as subjects. And so um, it's important to keep in mind these previous views of reality, because every time you make an advance, you're likely, if you're not very careful, to, to make a, a step, take a step back as well. You know, it's like mm -hmm. someone who's, who's carrying too much shopping and they, they, they stoop to pick, pick up the dropped cabbage. And as yeah. they pick up the dropped cabbage, they, they, they let go of the, of, the, of the coffee that they've bought as well. You know, mm -hmm. you, you take one step forward and two steps back if you're not careful. Um, so the whole point about the discarded image is that although it has been discarded for good reasons, there are certain reasons why we ought to retain an awareness of it. And one of the reasons we should retain an awareness of it is that uh, in the pre-Copernican cosmos, celestial bodies were not reduced to mere quantity. In other words, the material of the stars, the planets, was not the only thing that was important about them. Right. And that, this is, I think, his, Lewis's large-scale sort of intellectual point here about intellectual history, that in, in, in the wake of the scientific revolution in the, in the 17th and 18th centuries, 
um, for, for all that um, that revolution signified an advance in human knowledge, it also conceivably led to a, to a reductionism and to a narrowing of our perspective on reality. So that we began to think more and more of the, of the universe in terms of, of sim simple quantities. What, what is it made of? Where is it in the sky? How fast is it moving? Those questions are the questions that we now typically ask about the celestial bodies, but we don't ask the questions of, of why is it there? Who made it? Who was it made yes. for? Those more personal and spiritual questions, they've been evacuated out of the picture. But in the pre-Copernican model, they were still in the picture. And that's why it's worth remembering that old cosmological arrangement. Yeah. Is, yeah. There, is there also a, um, uh, and this is this is uh, not a loaded question, it's a sincere question, because I, I don't know the answer to this. Is there is there also a sense in which Lewis would, because uh, he also recommends, I think, at, the, at, the, at uh, the end of the discarded image, like, you reader, go outside and look up at the sky and try to remember what it's like to relate to the sky without all of this knowledge. So in God's providence, for, since, for time, since time out of mind, in God's providence, this sky just is the sky that's part of your sort of phenomenal horizon. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, the, the, the kind of old flat earth cosmology, even with the sky above and the Sheol below and the earth is surrounded by waters, you know, that sort of thing. There's a sense in which, and I guess I'm sort of wondering if Lewis is, would say this as well, because there's uh, people influenced by him like Wolfgang Smith and such who are, who are, who are arguing that not only that, um, even though we've discarded the image in a certain extent, the image itself also uh, retains a kind of phenomenological purchase. Uh, oh, yeah. That is to say, you walk outside and it still is flat. If you go far enough in any direction, you'll still bump into water. Uh, water still does fall out of the sky and God has, there's a way in which the, the attempt to read that as a kind of normative portal of God's revelation is actually still a very valid exercise. And even these descriptions are, even though they're not scientifically precise, these descriptions nevertheless do have a, um, uh, do still have something like, there's a way in which you're, you're lacking something of humanity if you don't relate to the sky in a more primitive way uh, or have some level of yourself where you're relating to the sky primitively. And the, and the, uh, another metaphor I think of there is that in the advance of knowledge, you were just talking about think we could take too many steps. And I often, when I think about this, think about the advance of a child's knowledge to an, to an, to an adult's knowledge very often the, 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 you know, becoming an adult is actually to lose some of the insightful attunement to the world that actually exists in the child and becoming a mature person to some extent is actually to reconnect with some, and this is really in Lewis, right, is to reconnect with some of the undiluted uh, sort, sort of phenomenological drives of the child within a mature discursive reason of the adult, you know, who's had the, 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 the whole vantage point of a life. So that's all to say, uh, you know, is there, would Lewis also say there's an, a degree to which the image is discarded relative to this discourse, but there's actually an element where the image is, is not discarded relative to this set of questions, relative maybe to yes. the phenomenality of the thing or something like that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and that's precisely, what he, what he tries to express in, in the epilogue to the discarded image where he says, um, the, the only thing I'm trying to do is to induce a certain kind of humility 
um, about cosmological mm. because just as the old Copernican model has been exploded and superseded, well, in 500 years time, people will look back about at the Einsteinian model of the cosmos. Right. How could people ever have been so stupid and superstitious as to believe in Einstein? Uh, he's sure. a very old hat. He's very passe now. Um, so in other words, what we should do is respect every model of the cosmos, but idolize none of them. Yeah. That's how mm -hmm. it. Um, respect the, the medieval view of the cosmos. Don't idolize it, but don't idolize the current model of the cosmos either. Just respect it for, for what it has to give you um, and be aware of what it is not giving you. Uh, so yeah. that speaks to your point about the, the child, that, uh, you know, and, and Lewis's view about maturation is, is quite relevant here. That he says gr growing up consists in not losing what you had as a child, but adding to a child's appreciation, levels of appreciation that are proper to adulthood. So like he right. says, when I, when I was a child, I enjoyed, I enjoyed bread and butter and honey. And now that I'm an adult, I enjoy bread and butter and honey and beer. Right. <laughs> right. right. Lose my taste for honey in order to take on the taste for beer. That's right. Now, I now have two pleasures where I pre previously only had one. Yes. Right. And there is a sense in which just, um, you know, thinking about the scriptures in the Old Testament, in ancient Near East, uh, their understanding of the world, they did view the heavens as sort of communicating divine wisdom. You, I, I was uh, teaching this in the, my Sunday school the other week. As I said, you know, uh, go outside and picture yourself as David long day herding sheep, right? Tired, gets some dinner in him, lays down, the sun's down, he lays down on a, on a nice grassy hill, and he's just staring up at the heavens. And then he pens Psalm 19, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. Day by day, they pour forth speech. Just to tap into that headspace, and this goes back to really what I was, a comment I made earlier, it's so difficult because I actually can't even see the heavens the way that David did because I have all of this ambient light drowning out the glory of God, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for electricity. Uh, but how can we, if we're thinking the way that Lewis wants us to think when we read Narnia, how can we actually recover that in a real way that's significant for us, not just as a sort of abstract understanding of this cool stuff that's nice and shiny and it's good to talk about, but when I move into the world, what, should, what kind of habits of thought should I be developing in order to attune myself to the cosmos in the way that Lewis wants us to? What, yeah. what does that even functionally look like is, is what I'm asking. Well, very good question. Uh, that's a very searching, challenging question for us all on our practical level. Yeah. And, uh, yes, ambient light, light pollution means that we now can't see these, these glorious heavens, which David wrote about in yeah, Psalm 19, which Lewis describes as the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And also, you know, Psalm 8, that's another great psalm of praise about the, about the created world. Um, and indeed, you know, from Genesis on, the Bible, the biblical record is all about how 
God has created the stars and the planets for signs and for seasons. And, you mm. know, think of, of how the wise men in Matthew's gospel follow the star and it takes them to Christ's birthplace. Yes. Um, there's a great significance and value in being able to see and study and interpret the heavens in various ways. Um, so that being the case, we ought to remember that and sometimes at least turn off our electric lights or go to a dark spot in the countryside and look up. And yeah. there, there are there's, there are now movements, aren't there, for uh, what's it called, dark dark skies or black space or something where where you. Oh, I've not heard of it. Yeah, it's um, there are places now where where you know the local authorities either ban street lighting or make sure that it's turned off after huh. a certain time of mm. night, so that people can appreciate the Milky Way, um, or you know the Northern Lights or whatever it is that you're wanting mm. to look at. Well, yeah. this, this is a such a, you know, in a way, I like the way you put that at the end, uh, uh, that there's a, there's something human and, and good and healthy uh, about us uh, having the capacity to interpret the sky, if you will, in a certain sort of way. Uh, and, and in a way, like what maybe unites that and in, 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 in what you're doing in reading Lewis is this theme of interpreting, a theme of reading. Uh, one of the things that I, one thing that Planet Narnia is, is not just a work about C.S. Lewis at a, at a kind of meta level. Uh, I would want to give this to students uh, just to train them to read literature. Uh, and so one thing I would, I, I would love for you to comment on, because I'm sure you have something, something to share with, with the average person. But, you know, if you were to sit in front of a room full of classical educators, you know, who are trying to, to give students a particular relationship to texts, that's, you know, part of the big goal of classical education. What would you say is maybe like a uh, a reading habit that most of us have that, that we need to kind of unlearn? And if you could just maybe give one thing to most classical educators, like get get your students to have this relationship to the text, to a text, what would you want to say is kind of a, I don't know, a central insight, a central uh, way of, of approaching texts uh, that, that can generate this kind of wisdom? <laughs> well, uh... I would echo precisely what C.S. Lewis says in his great book, An Experiment in Criticism. Uh, I never read that book when I was doing my own English degree here at Oxford many years ago, and I wish I had, because it's one of the wisest things that's ever been written about how to read a book, An Experiment mm. in Criticism, mm. uh, published by Cambridge University Press. It was C.S. Lewis, one of C.S. Lewis's last books, came out just a couple of years before he died. And in that book, Lewis talks about how we should get ourselves out of the way when we read. We should allow the text to do things to us and with us and for us. And we shouldn't expect to be doing things to the book. Mm. In other words, just let the book be itself. Don't force it into your own mold. Don't expect that it will speak precisely into your context and be relevant to you. No, make yourself relevant to it. Mm. Uh, we should read each work of wit. <clears throat> we should read each work of wit, he says, in the same spirit that the author writ. Mm. <laughs> so, um, in other words, we need to receive, not use, literature. That's, that's the distinction that he employs. Mm. P 
people are too ready to use literature and turn it to some sort of pre-existing effect that they want to gain some political or moral or, or right. psychological effect and you know christians are as as guilty of this as anybody um but you know we we approve literature which we think presents a christian worldview or right. has, a, has an edifying moral yes you know there's some wisdom in that lewis isn't saying anything against that per se but he is saying that if that's the only way you ever read you'll never learn anything right yeah you'll never yeah. get challenged to go beyond your pre-existing horizons right yes and that's the point that um you 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 pointed this out i believe it's somewhere in the beginning of planet narnia that uh you know c.s lewis was happy to affirm things that the pagans were teaching because uh, for him, and he talks about this in Surprised by Joy, if you just crush that because it's paganism, then you actually do damage to Christianity mm. as, as if the pagans can't see something about the beauty and wisdom of God in yeah. the same way that I, I can as an image bearer, and that's an image bearer, and we're using the faculties that our creator gave to us to discover these things. We should grab a hold of that and go, good job, paganism. Thank yeah, you yeah. for pointing this out. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and, and I, yes. You're, so. you're so right um, that everybody, in, you know, because everybody has been made in the image of God, everybody at least in principle, um, retains some uh, imaginative capacity to interpret God's creation, um, which which may not be entirely um, mistaken. There may be things sure. in a, in a non-Christian's understanding of the world which Christians can learn from, and from the similarities between pagan and Christian approaches to the world, we should not conclude so much the worse for Christianity that, oh no, we, we have something in common with paganism. Right. On the contrary, we should assume so much the better for paganism. Paganism yeah. is something in common with <laughs> right. paganism. You know, hurrah for paganism. It got some things right. It didn't yes. get the thing absolutely and always wrong. And indeed, we find this uh, approach to paganism in the scriptures itself, notably yeah. with St. Paul in Acts 17, when he's preaching to the Athenians, and he quotes to them their own poets, as even right. some of your poets have said, St. Paul says, and he there quotes Aratus and Epimenides, two Greek poets who wrote poems about Zeus, the king of the pagan gods. And St. Paul uses that as a springboard into his presentation of the gospel, because those original pagan poems said, in Zeus we live and move and have our being. Right. We are indeed Zeus's offspring. And St. Paul says, you're right that we're God's offspring, and you're right that we live and move and have our being in God, but you're wrong in calling him Zeus. <laughs> right, right, right. God is not Zeus. God, in fact, is the is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But you're right mm. in these other respects. So right. you know, two, two cheers for paganism. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Well, as we um, as we as we kind of draw toward a close here, maybe the last uh, uh, it's sort of a twofer, I guess, because it talking about this work. This work is, uh, uh, I, I guess, about thirteen years old at this point. Planet Narnia came out in two thousand eight. Um, uh, so maybe the first half of this question is: what's what's something that really excited you about the book that you actually feel is less commented upon? I, I'd love to hear that because, like, in thirteen years, I guess as an author, you know you. There's so many little discoveries in the book, right? 
Uh, and yet uh, there's probably a million book reviews of this book and people are, you know, it's, their head is exploding in all these ways. But is there something that you feel that really excited you that has not been as um, discussed uh, in your work? And then I guess the last question would be, what are you working on now? Uh, yeah, well, uh, as for what I, excites me most about Planet Narnia, let me mention two things, one very small and one large. And the small thing is, ever since I was a kid, when I read The Horse and His Boy, I had wondered why C.S. Lewis bothered to tell us about some unnamed Narnian Lord's hat. We're told <laughs> about this unnamed Narnian Lord that he was wearing a hat with little wings on either side of it. And nothing else we're told about this character at all, except some, this odd detail about his headgear. And ever since I was seven years old and first read The Horse and His Boy, I thought, what's going on there? Yeah. There must be a reason for that. And, you know, it was many, many years later when I had this discovery that um, I suddenly realized because the horse and his boy is all about Mercury and Mercury was, you know, traditionally pictured with wearing a winged cap with wings on his heels as well. Ah. That's why Lewis drops that little bread, ah. as it were, into the horse and his boy. What it's catharsis. He's giving the wink to us. Um, if we understand yeah. the inner meaning of the horse and his boy, we'll understand why that particular character is wearing a hat with wings on it. That's the tiny little example, which which always excites me because that really just solved a problem. I've been yeah, right. <laughs> get the pebble out of your shoe, um, yeah. and the and the larger scale thing about Planet Narnia that excites me is is what I write about in chapter uh, ten of the book, and that's where I connect the writing of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to to the debate that C.S. Lewis had with the philosopher Elizabeth Anscombe. Yes, right. I make a case that the reason Lewis turned to writing The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe was, was in large part, not exclusively, I think, but in large part connected with this debate that he had in the Socratic Club at Oxford, um, a debate all about miracles and, and how we understand things rationally. And I think the reason he turned from the very rational argumentation of his book Miracles to the so the very apparently simple fairy tale of the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe was because he was trying to present his own argument to himself in story form, in dramatic fairy tale form. And when you come at the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe from that angle, it makes another whole load of new sense, if you ask me. And at any rate, it becomes more explicable in, in the development of Lewis as a, as a writer. So those are the two things that excite me about Planet Narnia, the, the, yeah. the with wings and chapter 10. And as for what I'm working on now, uh, I've just this very afternoon um, sent to the publisher um, the, uh, the final draft of my book on the abolition of man. Uh, oh. C.S. Lewis's oh. philosophical work, which, which is highly regarded, but not very easily understood. Um, I've now written a guide to it, and it's called After Humanity, a guide mm. to business is the abolition of man, mm. and it's being published um, in June by Word on Fire Academic Press. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. In fact, that's one uh, that's one he uses in, in the abolition of man. I was going to say earlier, it's one of the very texts where he says, uh, I think there's a quote in there that goes something along the lines of, am I trying to weave a spell? Uh, perhaps I am. He actually said, uh, it's a, a fun, yeah. uh, 
a fun quote in the evolution of man uh, that uh, uh, it, it quite explicitly plays that role. Um, all right. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So yeah, that sounds um, great. Yeah, I'm in the business of education and uh, abolition of man was prophetic and it couldn't be more timely that you're going to publish a guide. So we will eagerly anticipate that brother and keep up the good work. Um, well, when it comes yeah. out, perhaps you'll have me back on the show and we can talk about Absolutely. It. Yeah, yeah. We'd love Absolutely. To yes. All right, guys. Well, thank you all for joining us. It's been a pleasure to talk with Dr. Ward about Planet Narnia. If you don't have a copy, please remedy that. Um, as always, you can find us on YouTube at the Davenant Institute's channel. Give us a like and a subscribe. And if this uh, conversation has been edifying or interesting, please share it all over the place. Uh, and if you want to pour your heart out in gratitude for Dr. Ward, uh, send him an email. I'm sure he doesn't get enough emails. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ward. Joe, I love you, brother. And we will see you next time. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe. Goodbye.